Chapter Five of Specimen Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Specimen Days by Walt Whitman. Chapter Five. A new army organization fit for America. It is plain to me, out of the events of the war, North and South, and out of all considerations, that the current military theory, practice, rules, and organizations, adopted from Europe from the feudal institutes, with, of course, the modern improvements, largely from the French, though tacitly followed, and believed in by the officers generally, are not at all consonant with the United States, nor our people, nor our days. What it will be I know not. But I know that as entire an abnegation of the present military system, and the naval too, and a building up from radically different root bases and centers appropriate to us, must eventually result, as that our political system has resulted and become established different from feudal Europe, and built up on itself from original, perennial, democratic premises. We have undoubtedly in the United States the greatest military power, an exhaustless, intelligent, brave, and reliable rank and file. In the world, any land, perhaps all lands. The problem is to organize this in the manner fully appropriate to it, to the principles of the Republic, and to get the best service out of it. In the present struggle, as already seen and reviewed, probably three fourths of the losses, men, lives, etc., have been sheer superfluity, extravagance, waste. Death of a hero. I wonder if I could ever convey to another. To you, for instance, reader dear, the tender and terrible realities of such cases, many, many happened, as the one I am now going to mention. Stuart C. Glover, Company E, 5th Wisconsin, was wounded May 5th in one of those fierce tussles of the wilderness, died May 21st, aged about 20. He was a small and beardless young man, a splendid soldier, in fact, almost an ideal American of his age. He had served nearly three years, and would have been entitled to his discharge in a few days. He was in Hancock's corps. The fighting had about ceased for the day, and the general commanding the brigade rode by and called for volunteers to bring in the wounded. Glover responded among the first, went out gaily, but while in the act of bearing in a wounded sergeant to our lines, was shot in the knee by a rebel sharpshooter. Consequence: amputation and death. He had resided with his father, John Glover. An aged and feeble man in Batavia, Genesee County, New York, but was at school in Wisconsin after the war broke out, and there enlisted. Soon took to soldier life, liked it, was very manly, was beloved by officers and comrades. He kept a little diary, like so many of the soldiers. On the day of his death, he wrote the following in it: "Today the doctor says I must die. All is over with me. Ah, so young to die." On another blank leaf, he penciled to his brother, "Dear brother Thomas, I have been brave but wicked. Pray for me." Hospital scenes, incidents. It is Sunday afternoon, middle of summer, hot and oppressive, and very silent through the ward. I am taking care of a critical case, now lying in a half lethargy. Near where I sit is a suffering rebel from the Eighth Louisiana. His name is Irving. He has been here a long time, badly wounded, and lately had his leg amputated. It is not doing very well. Right opposite me is a sick soldier boy, 
lain down with his clothes on, sleeping, looking much wasted, his pallid face on his arm. I see by the yellow trimming on his jacket that he is a cavalry boy. I step softly over and find by his card that he is named William Cone, of the first Maine cavalry, and his folks live in Skohegan. Ice cream treat. One hot day toward the middle of June, I gave the inmates of Carver Hospital a general ice cream treat, purchasing a large quantity, and under convoy of the doctor or head nurse, going around personally through the wards to see to its distribution. An incident. In one of the rites before Atlanta, a rebel soldier of large size, evidently a young man, was mortally wounded top of the head, so that his brains partially exuded. He lived three days, lying on his back on the spot where he first dropped. He dug with his heel in the ground during that time a hole big enough to put in a couple of ordinary knapsacks. He just lay there in the open air, and with little intermission kept his heel going night and day. Some of our soldiers then moved him to a house, but he died in a few minutes. Another. After the battles at Columbia, Tennessee, where we repulsed about a score of vehement rebel charges, they left a great many wounded on the ground, mostly within our range. Whenever any of these wounded attempted to move away by any means, generally by crawling off, our men without exception brought them down by a bullet. They let none crawl away, no matter what his condition. A Yankee Soldier As I turned off the avenue one cool October evening into 13th Street, a soldier with knapsack and overcoat stood at the corner inquiring his way. I found he wanted to go part of the road in my direction, so we walked on together. We soon fell into conversation. He was small and not very young, and a tough little fellow, as I judged, in the evening light, catching glimpses by the lamps we passed. His answers were short but clear. His name was Charles Carroll. He belonged to one of the Massachusetts regiments, and was born in or near Lynn. His parents were living, but were very old. There were four sons, and all had enlisted. Two had died of starvation and misery in the prisons at Andersonville, and one had been killed in the West. He only was left. He was now going home, and by the way he talked I inferred that his time was nearly out. He made great calculations on being with his parents to comfort them the rest of their days. Union Prisoners South Michael Stansbury, forty-eight years of age, a seafaring man, a southerner by birth and raising, formerly captain of U.S. lightship Longshoal, stationed at Longshoal Point, Pamlico Sound, though a southerner, a firm Union man, was captured February 17, 1863, and has been nearly two years in the Confederate prisons, was at one time ordered released by Governor Vance, but a rebel officer re-arrested him, then sent on to Richmond for exchange, but instead of being exchanged was sent down, as a southern citizen, not a soldier, to Salisbury, North Carolina, where he remained until lately, when he escaped among the exchanged by assuming the name of a dead soldier, and coming up via Wilmington with the rest, was about sixteen months in Salisbury. Subsequent to October 64, there were about 11,000 Union prisoners in the stockade, about a hundred of them southern Unionists, two hundred U.S. deserters. During the past winter, fifteen hundred of the prisoners, to save their lives, joined the Confederacy, on condition of being assigned merely to guard duty. Out of the 11,000, not more than 2,500 came out. 500 of these were pitiable, helpless wretches. The rest were in a condition to travel. There were often 60 dead bodies to be buried in the morning. The daily average would be about 40. 
The regular food was a meal of corn, the cob and husk ground together, and sometimes once a week a ration of sorghum molasses. A diminutive ration of meat might possibly come once a month, not oftener. In the stockade containing eleven thousand men, there was a partial show of tents, not enough for two thousand. A large proportion of the men lived in holes in the ground, in the utmost wretchedness. Some froze to death, others had their hands and feet frozen. The rebel guards would occasionally, and on the least pretense, fire into the prison for mere demonism and wantonness. All the horrors that can be named, starvation, lassitude, filth, vermin, despair, swift loss of self-respect, idiocy, insanity, and frequent murder, were there. Stansbury has a wife and child living in Newburn, has written to them from here, is in the U.S. lighthouse employ still, had been home to Newburn to see his family, and on his return to the ship was captured in his boat, has seen men brought there to Salisbury as hardy as you ever see in your life, in a few weeks completely dead gone, much of it from thinking on their condition, hope all gone, has himself a hard, sad, strangely deadened kind of look, as of one chilled for years in the cold and dark, where his good manly nature had no room to exercise itself. Deserters, October 24th saw a large squad of our own deserters, over three hundred, surrounded with a cordon of armed guards, marching along Pennsylvania Avenue. The most motley collection I ever saw, all sorts of rig, all sorts of hats and caps, many fine-looking young fellows, some of them shame-faced, some sickly, most of them dirty, shirts very dirty and long-worn, etc. They tramped along without order, a huge huddling mass, not in ranks. I saw some of the spectators laughing but I felt like anything else but laughing. These deserters are far more numerous than would be thought. Almost every day I see squads of them, sometimes two or three at a time, with a small guard, sometimes ten or twelve, under a larger one. I hear that desertions from the army now in the field have often averaged ten thousand a month. One of the commonest sights in Washington is a squad of deserters. A Glimpse of War's Hell Scenes In one of the late movements of our troops in the valley, near Upperville, I think. A strong force of Mosby's mounted guerrillas attacked a train of wounded, and the guard of cavalry convoying them. The ambulances contained about sixty wounded, quite a number of them officers of rank. The rebels were in strength, and the capture of the train and its partial guard after a short snap was effectually accomplished. No sooner had our men surrendered, than the rebels instantly commenced robbing the train and murdering their prisoners, even the wounded. Here is the scene, or a sample of it, ten minutes after. Among the wounded officers in the ambulances were one, a lieutenant of regulars, and another of higher rank. These two were dragged out on the ground on their backs, and were now surrounded by the guerrillas, a demonic crowd, each member of which was stabbing them in different parts of their bodies. One of the officers had his feet pinned firmly to the ground by bayonets stuck through them, and thrust into the ground. These two officers, as afterwards found on examination, had received about twenty such thrusts, some of them through the mouth, face, etc. The wounded had all been dragged, to give a better chance also for plunder, out of the wagons. Some had been effectually dispatched, and their bodies were lying there lifeless and bloody. Others, not yet dead, but horribly mutilated, were moaning or groaning. Of our men who surrendered, most had been thus maimed or slaughtered. At this instant a force of our cavalry, who had been following the train at some interval, 
charged suddenly upon the sea-cached captors, who proceeded at once to make the best escape they could. Most of them got away, but we gobbled two officers and seventeen men in the very acts just described. The sight was one which admitted of little discussion, as may be imagined. The seventeen captured men and two officers were put under guard for the night, but it was decided there and then that they should die. The next morning the two officers were taken in the town, separate places, put in the centre of the street, and shot. The seventeen men were taken to an open ground a little one side. They were placed in a hollow square, half encompassed by two of our cavalry regiments, one of which regiments had three days before found the bloody corpses of three of their men, hamstrung, and hung up by the heels to limbs of trees by Mosby's guerrillas, and the other had not long before had twelve men, after surrendering, shot and then hung by the neck to limbs of trees, and jeering inscriptions pinned to the breast of one of the corpses who had been a sergeant. Those three, and those twelve, had been found, I say, by these environing regiments. Now, with revolvers, they formed the grim cordon of the seventeen prisoners. The latter were placed in the midst of the hollow square, unfastened, and the ironical remark made to them that they were now to be given a chance for themselves. A few ran for it, but what use? From every side the deadly pills came. In a few minutes the seventeen corpses strewed the hollow square. I was curious to know whether some of the Union soldiers, some few, some one or two at least of the youngsters, did not abstain from shooting on the helpless men. Not one. There was no exultation, very little said, almost nothing, yet every man there contributed his shot. Multiply the above by scores, aye, hundreds, verified in all the forms that different circumstances, individuals, places could afford, Light it with every lurid passion, the wolves, the lions lapping thirst for blood, the passionate boiling volcanoes of human revenge for comrades, brothers slain, with the light of burning farms and heaps of smutting, smouldering black embers, and in the human heart everywhere black, worse embers, and you have an inkling of this war. Gifts, Money, Discrimination as a very large proportion of the wounded came up from the front without a cent of money in their pockets, I soon discovered that it was about the best thing I could do to raise their spirits, and show them that somebody cared for them, and practically felt a fatherly or brotherly interest in them, to give them small sums in such cases, using tact and discretion about it. I am regularly supplied with funds for this purpose by good women and men in Boston, Salem, Providence, Brooklyn, and New York. I provide myself with a quantity of bright new ten-cent and five-cent bills, and when I think it incumbent, I give twenty-five or thirty cents, or perhaps fifty cents, and occasionally a still larger sum to some particular case. As I have started this project, I take opportunity to ventilate the financial question. My supplies, altogether voluntary, mostly confidential, often seeming quite providential, were numerous and varied. For instance, there were two distant and wealthy ladies, sisters, who sent regularly, for two years, quite heavy sums, enjoining that their names should be kept secret. The same delicacy was indeed a frequent condition. From several I had carte blanche. Many were entire strangers. From these sources, during from two to three years, in the manner described, in the hospitals, I bestowed, as almoner for others, many, many thousands of dollars. I learned one thing conclusively, that beneath all the ostensible greed and heartlessness of our times— there is no end to the generous benevolence of men and women in the United States, when once sure of their object. Another thing became clear to me. 
while cash is not amiss to bring up the rear, tact and magnetic sympathy and unction are, and ever will be, sovereign still. Items from my notebooks. Some of the half-erased and not over-legible when made memoranda of things wanted by one patient or another will convey quite a fair idea. D.S.G., bed 52, wants a good book, has a sore, weak throat, would like some whorehound candy, is from New Jersey, 28th Regiment. C.H.L., 145th Pennsylvania, lies in bed 6, with jaundice and erysipelas, also wounded, stomach easily nauseated, bring him some oranges, also a little tart jelly, hearty, full-blooded young fellow, he got better in a few days and is now home on a furlough. J.H.G., bed 24, wants an undershirt, drawers, and socks, has not had a change for quite a while, is evidently a neat, clean boy from New England. I supplied him, also with a comb, toothbrush, and some soap and towels. I noticed afterwards he was the cleanest of the whole ward. Mrs. G., lady nurse, ward F., wants a bottle of brandy, has two patients imperatively requiring stimulus, low with wounds and exhaustion. I supplied her with a bottle of first-rate brandy from the Christian Commission Rooms. A case from Second Bull Run. Well, poor John Mahay is dead. He died yesterday. His was a painful and long-lingering case. See page 24. I have been with him at times for the past fifteen months. He belonged to Company A, 101st New York, and was shot through the lower region of the abdomen at Second Bull Run, August 62. One scene at his bedside will suffice for the agonies of nearly two years. The bladder had been perforated by a bullet going entirely through him. Not long since, I sat a good part of the morning by his bedside, Ward E, Armory Square. The water ran out of his eyes from the intense pain, and the muscles of his face were distorted, but he uttered nothing except a low groan now and then. Hot, moist cloths were applied and relieved him somewhat. Poor Mahay, a mere boy in age, but old in misfortune. He never knew the love of parents, was placed in infancy in one of the New York charitable institutions, and subsequently bound out to a tyrannical master in Sullivan County, the scars of whose cowhide and club remained yet on his back. His wound here was a most disagreeable one, for he was a gentle, cleanly, and affectionate boy. He found friends in his hospital life, and indeed was a universal favorite. He had quite a funeral ceremony. Army Surgeons, Aid Deficiencies I must bear my most emphatic testimony to the zeal, manliness, and professional spirit and capacity generally prevailing among the surgeons, many of them young men, in the hospitals and the army. I will not say much about the exceptions, for they are few, but I have met some of those few, and very incompetent and airish they were. I never ceased to find the best men and the hardest and most disinterested workers among the surgeons in the hospitals. They are full of genius, too. I have seen many hundreds of them, and this is my testimony. There are, however, serious deficiencies, wastes, sad want of system, in the commissions, contributions, and in all the voluntary, and a great part of the governmental, nursing, edibles, medicines, stores, etc., I do not say surgical attendance, because the surgeons cannot do more than human endurance permits. Whatever puffing accounts there may be in the papers of the North, this is the actual fact. No thorough previous preparation, no system, no foresight, no genius. Always plenty of stores, no doubt, but never where they are needed, and never the proper application. 
Of all harrowing experiences, none is greater than that of the days following a heavy battle. Scores, hundreds of the noblest men on earth, uncomplaining, lie helpless, mangled, faint, alone, and so bleed to death, or die from exhaustion, either actually untouched at all, or merely the laying of them down and leaving them, when there ought to be means provided to save them. THE BLUE EVERYWHERE This city, its suburbs, the capital, the front of the White House, the places of amusement, the avenue, and all the main streets, swarm with soldiers this winter, more than ever before. Some are out from the hospitals, some from the neighboring camps, etc. One source or another they pour plenteously, and make, I should say, the marked feature in the human movement and costume appearance of our national city. Their blue pants and overcoats are everywhere, the clump of crutches is heard up the stairs of the paymaster's offices, and there are characteristic groups around the doors of the same, often waiting long and wearily in the cold. Toward the latter part of the afternoon, you see the furloughed men, sometimes singly, sometimes in small squads, making their way to the Baltimore depot. At all times, except early in the morning, the patrol detachments are moving around, especially during the earlier hours of evening, examining passes and arresting all soldiers without them. They do not question the one-legged or men badly disabled and maimed, but all others are stopped. They also go around evenings through the auditoriums of the theatres, and make officers and all show their passes or other authority for being there. A Model Hospital Sunday, January ninth, 1865 Have been in Armory Square this afternoon. The wards are very comfortable, new floors and plaster walls and models of neatness. I am not sure but this is a model hospital after all, in important respects. I found several sad cases of old lingering wounds. One Delaware soldier, William H. Millis, from Bridgeville, whom I had been with after the battles of the wilderness last May, where he received a very bad wound in the chest, with another in the left arm, and whose case was serious, pneumonia had set in, all last June and July, I now find well enough to do light duty. For three weeks at the time mentioned he just hovered between life and death. End of chapter 5